Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your son. The point in history that all of our need waited for, all of our need looks back at, your incarnation into a killable form that you might die for us and our sins and we're grateful. We'd ask that you would give us the humility in this time. In your son's name, amen. Now, Christmas is a few days away from what I understand. Um, and there are Christmas passages in the Bible. This is one of them. Luke chapter 2. It's the part in the Peanuts special that Linus recites. You know, you know your classics. And sometimes it's hard to speak about things that are so familiar that if you saw it on TV, primetime being recited by Linus, what good spiritual could really come of that? It's so a part of the holiday, so a little a part of your Christian life. And I've said before to you, the Christ Christmas is not part of Christianity. Not merely because it's some sort of ancient Saturnalia that got shifted over by the Roman Catholic Church, not because of that so much, is that because in Christianity it never told you to have a holiday about anything. Matter of fact, it warned you to avoid those things because that's a shadow. That's, Easter's the same way. It's not part of Christianity. It's part of culture that tracked along with Christianity and we have a Christmas tree because of combination of, you know, Christianity and Wotan tree worship because we're pagans. <laughs> so we know that. And so sometimes when some portion of the scripture gets co-opted by the culture that surrounds Christianity, we're just sort of Christmas, that, that we're just sort of satisfied that some real scripture has ended up in a Macy's ad. I don't think it has, but it might. Someday, you know, when they say something like, believe, exclamation point, red star, probably for communism, not for the Lord, but whatever the, whatever the case, they, you, you're, you're, you're kind of moved that, last night the, the Sandmeyers were over and it took us a long time to clean up, but uh, Victoria was uh, propping, uh, what's the name of that woman who sings? We watched the video of her on the CMT Awards. Carrie Underwood singing How Great Thou Art. So we watched a little video of it, argued about it, whether we thought it was any good. But we were, we were basically saying, this is great. Primetime, award shows, somebody singing a hymn. Singing it straight up as a hymn. With the country effects. You're pleased that a little bit of Christianity sneaks over into the culture. And so sometimes you're looking at a passage like Luke 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and your mind goes, okay, that's kind of owned by the holiday. You say, Evan, you skipped over that Luke 1 thing you have up at the top. Yeah, I did, but let's go back and look at that first, because it's going to change how we look at the Luke 2 passage. Luke 1, 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, 
And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. That's the beginning lines of the Magnificat. A great poetic piece that Mary sings, thinks, writes, that expresses her feeling at being chosen of God to bear the Christ. My soul, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. He has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. What I want to think about this morning is what in Christmas we're struggling with that cultural phenomenon over there, not because they took our Christmas, but because they gave us our Christmas. We'd like to have a little bit a Christmas, a, a, a bit of our holiday, uh, um, you might say spiritually beneficial to us, if it's not part of Christianity, at least beneficial to us, in some way understand what, what Mary's feeling going into this was. She's going into the birth of the Lord, at least the nine months preceding it, with a sense of magnifying God. So is this a benefit to us at all? This week I, I've been kept up late by various Christians. like Nicodemus coming in the night. I would be Jesus in that illustration. <laughs> in case you were saying, where's heaven in this? Uh, well, oh yeah, Jesus. Last night it was the Sand Myers and the Hagans. The night before it was Norm. Where's Norm? Norm and Nick Rozier. Well, that night with Nick, we were had come out of the Wine, Wisdom, and Song Bible study, and it had been discussed, I think from Jennifer's question, wherever Jennifer is, about the chief end of man in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, whether or not it was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. They had come up with that line. It's a good line. It's good to do. No objections. Anybody objecting to glorify God and enjoy him forever? No, that's a, generally a positive all round. Whether it is the chief end of man was the question. It kept us up past midnight. But that's what we're having to do with. So consequently, glorifying God was on my mind. And since even if you didn't hold that the chief end was to glorify God, the chief end might be something else, you know that glorifying God is something that is your... You're both told to do, encouraged to do, react in doing, through all the things that you see. That's what she means when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. You've seen, you know, I... Something I've been, I was looking at this passage going, what do I notice about this passage? I was thinking about glorifying God. I was thinking about the effects of glory in the passage. I was thinking about, you know, Christmas and the relationship to our society. And I was thinking about how little the baby is involved in all of this. You ever notice that? It's everything about everyone else. It's about Zachariah, it's about Elizabeth, it's about John the Baptist, it's about Mary, it's about Gabriel. Gabriel gets more lines than the baby. The baby just said, I show up, put in a manger, that was it. 
uh, verse 7 there. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied him in a manger, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Even the innkeeper and the quality of the, the, the Holiday Inn Express is more in the verse than the baby. The baby gets no lines, no description, no, and he was really cute. None of that. My, my nativity scene has a baby Jesus doing this. You know, it's about that big, but doing this, and of course Mary's doing this, and, and they're all ceramic, but Joseph on his knees. And you sort of think that when you approach the baby Jesus in the manger, you fall to your knees because you want a closer look. Not because you're falling to your knees in front of the Lord. But, whatever the case, I noticed that it was more about the surrounding people. All the events that were going on around the baby. The baby, later on, with Chuck's uh, old rugged cross uh, participation in our developing liturgy over the next thousand years. That's where Jesus sort of steps up. After he's 30... He starts saying things to people that annoy the heck out of him, and then they kill him. And he says things on the cross, and yeah, now I'm listening to Jesus Christ. But when it's an unimportant event, really what the importance is, the importance to Mary, the shepherds, the wise men, Joseph, Herod, Gabriel, and us. It's a ruckus. I mean, it's a difficult uh, moment in history. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be enrolled, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Caesar Augustus, first princeps of Rome, Quirinius, governor of Syria, governor of Syria, later um, in, mentioned in Acts, when he was governor. We don't have an official record of this governorship in Syria at the time of Christ's birth. We don't have a lot of information about what's going on in Syria at the time. Um, Christ is born around 4 BC, uh, probably in February. Just saying, if you want to know why, I've got it all worked out with charts. I don't have any charts, actually, but I can make a chart. Probably born in February, mostly because Herod dies in March of 4 BC, and Herod is still alive, Herod the Great, still alive when Christ is born. Quirinius, a notable figure mentioned by Tacitus and, and others, uh, noted for being just a really notable, rotten person. Just rotten. A rotten Roman governor. Uh, at this point in time, he was warring against the tribes in Galatia, and the Cilician pirates right there in the same area as Syria. Uh, so there's no reason to think, because I don't have a record of this census in Syria, uh, if you take um, this passage's meaning that that's what he was uh, um, doing. Um, some people think this text is not the basic saying, that this is the first enrollment, not the one that Quirinius was doing when governor in Syria. 
this is all not anything you want to take home with you and say, how do I work that Quirinius stuff into my life and why would I put that verse on my fridge? It's not for your spiritual benefit, it's for, I don't know, some people like information. But, but Luke gives us that sort of information. Luke is one of a, very, a very respected ancient historian. He likes to give you how you would bracket an event. Okay, Caesar Augustus was emperor. Quirinius was governor. During the census, this is when Jesus was born. And in that region, verse 8, there were shepherds. You notice, nothing about the baby. No more about what happens next. How did they, by the time the wise men show up in Bethlehem, they're in a house. But it doesn't even tell you. You'd think they'd be honing in on the baby Jesus and all the decisions around them, how they got the nursery established. But no, out to the fields. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Not only are you dragged out there, to the fields around Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles south of Jerusalem. You're out in the fields, but God and the angels. Why are the? It's, it's almost like everything is about Jesus Christ, around Jesus Christ, and God Himself is sending messengers to these guys out in the fields. keeping watch over their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with fear. And what we're trying to do is look at this glory thing, because it was on my mind, so the sermon is going to try to make it on your mind. This is your standard impression of glory. You say, you know, the, the angels show up, and the glory shone, right? Because you got that sense of the aura, your, uh, your, the numinous uh, glow that, around spiritual agents. You know, angels step into reality and, and the, the, the air gets electric and CGI stuff. You, you know what CGI is. Right? Things where people glow. Brilliant people. Oh, they're really special because they have a, a shine to them. The glory of the Lord. The word is doxa. You get doxology has to do with glory, a, 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 a radiance. But also it had, one of the meanings of doxa is magnificence. Because that's what the radiance represents. We know that when we see, if someone walked into the church right now, here you are all pretty subdued, a number of red sweaters. It's Christmas time. But, you know, none of you are glow. I can see all of you from here. None of you are special. You're about, you're about as average as it gets. So if someone walked in and kind of music started playing in your background, just someone who walks around with a soundtrack and it's kind of like uh, not as bad as Star Wars, but it's something that makes you feel like you better stand up in their presence and they're kind of glowing. You don't just go, oh, is something wrong, buddy? You're kind of glowing. We think, are you someone special? Are you from heaven? We know what 
glory shining represents. It's magnificence. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, <coughs> I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You notice how that last part gets dropped off the Christmas cards? The with whom he is pleased. And he wasn't saying, I'm really pleased with everybody, because that was the, not the point, sending Christ. Because he was not pleased with everybody. Something had to be done about sin. But peace is available on earth if you please God. But I'm not here to talk about all the wonderful things in between. Because there's these wonderful things. Good news, great joy, city of David, Christ the Lord. All those that you have to do sermons on all those parts. But we're doing it on the glory that shone around the angel of the Lord. And then the glory they declare. Glory to God in the highest. How is that different? It's the same root word. I have it on the side here. Doc, doxazo. One is the magnificence itself. And one is to magnify the magnificence. When you glorify God, you mag magnify him. You can even think of it in terms of not the shining brighter, but looking at it under something that would make it bigger to you. You are declaring, making something bigger. You are dis describing it as great. That's what magnification is, right? You look, I have a magnifying glass from my Oxford English Dictionary, and it helps me. Make the words bigger, so you can see them. You know what magnification is. We sometimes you know, speak about praising someone or honoring someone. Those are good terms as well. But glorifying God, the glory itself is the magnificence. And when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, She's expressing something in a slightly different way that we become too used to speaking of as mere, I glorify God. Do I glorify God? Is it the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? What am I even saying? What am I saying when I say, I am here to glorify God? Or I'm doing all things to the glory of God? Is it just another kind of religious word that we throw in there instead of saying, I work hard? I say, I do all things to glorify God. No, I, I need to understand that like Mary, like the angels, she magnified, they magnified God. Now, something happens when you magnify God. Look what happens with the, the shepherds. Because he doesn't tell us about the baby much. He tells us about the shepherds a lot more. When the angels went away from them into heaven, 
the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. What I want you to think about is, they repeat that line, and they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. First they go, hey, let's go do what the angels told us has happened. They get to the manger, they said, hey, this is what we, we were told has happened. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Seems like it keeps repeating that. They had been told by the angels that the Messiah, the Christ, had come and was in a manger. And they went to see what had been told them. They pursued what had been told them. I noticed that they went in haste. Others, when they told them the story, were made to wonder. There's a responsiveness that shows up in certain people. When what is told them, like the angels have told them, when you tell someone the gospel, do they want to run to Bethlehem in haste and find out, meet the Christ? Do they want to? Sometimes it's your fault. In other words, you're not a good evangelist. Other times they're just not the kind of person who wants to know Jesus. It wouldn't matter if the angels showed up. But others will haste. They will go. They will seek it out. They will wonder. They will lay it up in their heart. And when they walk away from the situation, they will be glorifying God and praising him for everything they'd heard and seen. Now, you say, Evan, it's always thus, isn't it? Here we sit in North Idaho, little Bible church steeple. I don't know, there might be 70 people here. 2,000 years after the big events, and all we get is a Christmas card with some shepherds standing on a hillside with some glitter representing the snow. And maybe a star, peace on earth, it says. That's the closest you get to this vision, right? And quickly you look at, oh, Aunt Mabel in the trash. Because it's just a Christmas card. It's not angels showing up with the host of heaven. That's, that's the big, you know, it's one thing to have that angel, and I don't know if he had wings, but let's just imagine for the sake of the card, he had wings. And he's floating in the air above them, and he's talking to them. And just when he gets to the crisis remark, boom, the whole choir shows up. You say, well, yeah, I could have Bethlehem too. If angels were singing around me, I would because it's pretty impressive. It's like the glowing person who showed up at church last week. I'm impressed. Their magnificence. I want to remind you 
those of you who are believers. They sang for you, too. Luke 15, 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When you were born again, when you fell on your knees in glory, in the heavens, these same characters sent the choir out someplace and sang of your repentance. Because that's a great mystery and a great joy and a great gift to God from man. So it does... You say, well, I didn't see it. Oh, you're such a grousey. You're just complaining all the time. You don't have to believe it. You can say Luke was wrong. I don't, you know, I don't have time to go into why you should believe it. It's just this is what it says. This is what Christians believe. I'm talking to Christians who want their Christmas and want their Magnificat. They don't want to be left out of Mary's Magnificat. They don't want to be left out of the shepherds. We too are standing around the nativity scene. We too, just a distance of 2,000 years and half a world away. What is our common thread with them? What are we recognizing in the magnificence of God's gift to man and our ability to magnify it? Because that's what we're about at Christmas. Not just the phrase, putting Christ in, back into Christmas. That's pretty tedious. We think we're making great headway in the culture of people stop saying happy holidays. Oh, the manager of Applebee's wished us a Merry Christmas and apologized to us immediately afterwards. We reassured him it was all right. We were not a social justice warrior who was going to take them to court for having offended. We think we have a victory there. I would want, rather have Christ in you, the hope of glory, not you and your participation in the culture, not you fighting off the social justice warriors, you know, the people with their knickers in a twist, about everything. And it's entertaining to go to battle with them, but it's not our job. Our job is to glorify God. To walk away from a situation with Christ like the shepherds did, glorifying and praising God. Your walk with him, your peace with him, rests in this response. It doesn't rest on whether we force the world to say Christmas when they don't want to. It doesn't exist if we put in the end of that verse about with whom he is pleased on a Christmas card. We're not trying to win in the culture. We're trying to win you. Because the problem in the world is not the culture. The problem in the world is not the history of man. The problem in the world is not the secular state. The problem in the world is people who sin against the living God. And the problem they have is because they have magnified themselves and they haven't magnified the Lord. That's it. God is not bigger than they are. They walk into a decision and they say, thank you God, but I got this. I will make a decision about this. Because I like me more than you like me. 
I love me, in fact. Or as it says in Paralandra, not thus, but thus. When we make a choice about who's in charge and we decide who we're going to magnify. Because frankly, you're singing a Magnificat to somebody, <laughs> somehow. You're making a decision about who you made bigger in your mind. And I don't want to fix the culture. I like the Christmas trees. I don't mind a red star on the Macy's bag. I hate Kris Kringle. I mean, I just hate it with a passion. But some of you probably like Santa. Grew up with Santa. Part of your parents' love for you. But none of that, I don't care. Again, it's not a Christian thing. The Christian thing is whether your soul magnifies the Lord. For he has regarded the, your low estate and given himself for you. This, that recognition, magnifying God, knowing that your low estate still has an ability, an ability to collect something off of God's grace. So when God is magnificent, even the angels, the angels are magnificent, you glorify, you magnify the magnificent. It's hard for us since we don't have the action. We, we know they sing with joy at your salvation. We don't get to hear the recording. We don't get to see the video. We don't actually have it happen. Not only that, but time goes on. And I, I, I work my way a little bit out of the Christmas passage for the sake of making a point into John 3. This is after time had gone on, quite a bit of time, a lifetime, essentially. Christ is now in his ministry. And in John 3, this is after the famous John 3, 16. Remember that? God so loved the world. This is John 3, 25. Now a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying, and they came to John, this is John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, here he is, baptizing, and all are going to him. This is the worst thing about it. It's not chestnuts roasting on an open fire, which I'm not quite sure I understand. I guess in a city, maybe, from the 1920s or something, people cared about those little nostalgic things. What are the other Christmas tunes? Baby, it's cold outside. Why don't we fornicate? I think that's a Christmas theme. Because when James Taylor sings it, of course. But <laughs> I love Jesus. What's the real crisis for Christmas? Nothing. What would that, that person who showed up glowing? Some of you be going, oh, like, great. Who does she think she is? Glowing like that. Have you ever felt that? Somebody who just, not even glowing, just better looking than you. Just frankly, there are, I'm not going to let my gaze fall on anybody in particular, but yes, there are people better looking than you. And they might, dear heavens, show up at All Souls Christian Church 
just so that you can find out what you do with magnificence when it arrives. <laughs> you know, you can hear the claws coming out on half the population. She's probably not saved. She probably reformed. <laughs> Now, I'm warning you about that. It's not because I'm really concerned about how you welcome people who are just visiting, who might be really hot. No, that's not, the, that's not the point. The point is, what do we do when we run into magnificence? Jesus came to earth magnified by God. Angel hosts, not just singing in heaven, but coming down and looking for a group of blue-collar shepherds to sing to them and blow their heads to make them run to the nearby town because oh my gosh he sent a star to appear to Persians who would then make a long trek out of Persia to find this king of the Jews he would give visions to the Mary to Joseph he was God on earth God with us the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. Big moment. John's at his ministry. He's got disciples and people coming to him. Um, you know, that guy that you were used to, you know, you helped out at the beginning, you know, you got him started. I mean, that's the actual nature of the phrase here, right? To whom you bore witness. He was with you. He was with your ministry, John. And, and here you, you got him started. Now, God. He's baptizing. They call you John the Baptist. You'd think you'd like have like copyright or some kind of trade protection against other Jesus the Baptist. He's baptizing. And not only that, John, people that used to follow you are now going over to him. Got that? People think that obeying him, listening to him is more important than listening to you. That's what our problem is. That's Christmas. That's the Magnificat. The magnificence has arrived. Are you going to magnify it? Is it the fact that it is being magnified? What happened to Herod, right? When he heard from the Magi that the king of the Jews had arrived, he has to lie to them and say, let me know when you find him so I can go worship too. Lying, because then he kills all the babies and because he wants to be sure that nobody gets magnified except Herod Magnus. That's why they call it you know, Ronaldus Magnus. You know who Ronaldus Magnus is? Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Ronald the Great. That's Magnus. Pompeius Magnus. Pompey the Great. The Great is Magnus. Magnify. Magnificent. Magnificent people show up. We are sometimes catty. We sometimes feel challenged. We know that our own magnificence to ourselves, our own satisfaction in ourselves, it warns us in the scriptures about comparing ourselves one to another. We know the, the, the moral problem there. We're talking about the ultimate problem of evil. You have magnified you, but the magnified God has showed up with expectation. John answered, no one can receive anything 
except what is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, are you satisfied with what you've been given from heaven? Now I know that really a lot more attractive person could show up, but they haven't, and you might be the most attractive person in this church. Maybe. You might be the smartest. You might be the most well-off. You might be all sorts of good gifts from God. No one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. John is comfortable. These people who are trying to tempt him into a bitter feeling about Jesus are not successful. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. What do they tell the, the moms of mother of the groom? How she supposed she's supposed to dress? What's the rule? Wear beige. Wear, be, wear beige and be quiet. Because there is a presumption that there are a few other women there, the bride and the mother of the bride, who are more important and better look better. You better not show up, mother of grooms, looking better. You can look better than the bride. Just don't look better than the mother of the bride. Because <laughs> there could be blood. There will be blood. You're not the Christ. John wasn't the Christ. Have you ever, I remember having seen a poster years ago. Mark probably remembers this, maybe Roy. We used to sell it at at Crossroads Bookstore out in the mall decades ago. It's a soft focus picture of a tree in a field. Sunlight coming through the leaves. Two great truths, it said at the top. Nice loopy letters making you feel better. There is a God. Uh -huh. You are not him. <laughs> You're not God. John wasn't the Christ. I told you that. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the best looking person in the church. I'm not as magnificent. I don't deserve as much magnification as the Lord. Now Jesus gave John a lot of magnification. No greater man born of woman than John. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. That's where you're at. When the magnificent shows up, when you know that you're supposed to be second, when you know you're of low estate, and the magnificent shows up, and it recognizes, it comes to you because of your low estate. And it doesn't say, hey, we're all equal here. I'm not, I don't know my name is Jesus, but I'm, we're just all the same, really. We're all in this together. No, they say, I am your master and I am your Lord. And if you do not confess Jesus as Lord, you don't have Christ. And the reason you don't confess Jesus as Lord is you've got another Lord. You're not really convinced you're going to magnify this Yahoo. This Jewish guy. Not because you're anti-Semitic, just because you're not sure about Jesus. But that's the deal. John knew it. He says, 
I know who I am. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom has the bride. He's the magnificent one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is what John says. Just seeing Jesus walk by. Behold the Lamb of God. And this great line, verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the one you put on the fridge. Because what is it saying? Saying, do you have you a magnificat for your God? Is his magnificence what he has done? Was it saying Romans 1? Because they did not honor God or give him thanks, he gave them up to the futility of their minds, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Have you seen the magnificence of God? Have you seen the magnificence of Christ? Because their magnificence is just of their own. It's not waiting for you. It is not, God doesn't need my glorification of him. Right? He dwells in eternity. Magnificent. Things glow around God. He doesn't, he's not waiting for Evan or All Souls Christian to get around to praising him. We are getting around. We need to get around to praise him. Because that's the whole tension of sin. Is have I decreased? And has he increased? You aren't smart enough to run your own life. You'll find, you know, I'm 60. I have trouble tying my shoes now. Not because I'm 60. Because my wife thinks I don't know how to tie my shoes. I mean, really, we had this discussion this year. Why are your shoes untied? Well, they come untied. Let me see what you do. She checked like I was in preschool. <laughs> and I was doing it all wrong, according to the, I guess, the standards. Made the loops wrong. I said, I don't want to think about it. I'm bent over in half, and that's not easy. And I'm not thinking that things are happening in my head, lack of blood and... And this is the way I learned it, so what are you saying about my mother? It gets ugly. We're smart enough to figure out shoe tying, maybe. Check with me later. I don't know if I've worked it out. We got some things that God has given us. Why don't you figure out? Choose, choose your job. Okay, knock yourself out. Great, and so you're a dentist. But we need him. We're dealing with a life that is far bigger than what you choose to do for a profession. You gotta live with people. You gotta love people. You gotta be obedient to the God of heaven. You gotta be merciful, you gotta be kind. It's not easy. Your own children give you grief. Your own spouse gives you grief, usually about tying shoes. How are you going to live? How are you going to deal? You don't know how. People have been thinking about this for 6,000 years. They still don't know how. Nobody wrote a manual. We've all dealt with the same problems. We still don't know. But we have a God. We have a Christ. Who knows? And if I would just magnify Him, if I would just increase Christ and decrease heaven,
He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and of the earth he speaks. You can get some rather brilliant people on this earth. Even people that don't know Jesus Christ are brilliant. You can say wonderful things. They study the things of earth. Ever run across that? Either ancient philosophers or some scientist or something like that says something just brilliant. Wow. Even God has that opinion of man back at the Tower of Babel. He says, if they achieve this, nothing will be impossible for them. God has a high opinion of man. What man is capable, but we're of earth. And what we say is of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So you got somebody, two worlds, earth speaking of earth, heaven speaking of heaven, heaven is higher than earth, and heaven shows up on earth, speaking of heaven. And people don't listen. They're not recognizing, they're not recognizing the magnificence of God's Son. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He who receives his testimony, so that the hyperbole of no one receives his testimony, says no, that means just means most, because there are few who listen to Christ. He who receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. We start, as soon as we start listening to what those from heaven have said, whether it is the prophets, the apostles, or the Christ himself. When God from heaven speaks to you, when you start to listen to his testimony, you're starting to claim godness of God. The height that you're dealing with. The natural distinction of magnificence between you of lowly estate and God of a high estate. God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For it is not by measure that he gives the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Start to meditate on that. The baby Jesus, who might not have glowed in the cradle adequately, might not have had the story in Luke rotate around the baby quite so much, still surrounded the narrative with all sorts of moments of glory, because that which was happening was historically that of glory. And if I start to believe what God has said, just start to believe what God has said. When I start to claim that God is true, when I start to drift away from my own increase and start to increase what God is, Some of the things you will realize is that the Father loves the Son and he has given him all things. And he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. You start to magnify the Lord. It's the path to salvation. What does it say in the, the, what's the most often quoted passage in this church? I think it's the most often quoted passage. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For anyone who would draw near to God must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
those who have made haste to Bethlehem, those who have started to hear, believe the testimony, know that they're dealing with that which is much higher, better looking than they are. Greater. Greater like a God is greater than you. Anybody hear a God? No? Good. A God greater than all of you. Believing in him. The magnification of the Christ. Some of you might be poets. I know some of you are writers. Write your own magnificat. Where you magnify the Lord for what he has done for you. There is your salvation. Not that you wrote a poem, but that you believe in this son, and you have decreased, and you didn't bow by the cradle because you wanted a closer look at the cute baby. You bowed at the cradle because this is your Lord in Christ. Is it, what's that carol say at the end? The, the virgin's sweet boy is the Lord of the earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, your son who lived and died, the greatness of the divine made mortal because of our sin. Lord, we are grateful. We can't express adequately we cannot sing more highly. We do what we can to magnify your Son, Lord. Help us decrease and increase him who loved us and gave himself for us. In your Son's name, the blessed Jesus Christ. Amen.